Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the second in our lecture series by the Philippe Romain Professor for 2011-2012 at LSE Ideas, Dr. Damachandra Guha. My name is Arne Westard. I'm one of the directors of LSE Ideas with uh, Professor Michael Cox, who is also here tonight. And it's a great pleasure for us to organize this series um, in which one of the leading public intellectuals of India, of the South Asia region, is reflecting on the historical aspects of some of the uh, most important issues that we have to deal with today in terms of international affairs. And I'm particularly pleased, given my own interest within the region, that Ram has decided for his second lecture to deal with the relationship between China and India. Now, for me, and for many people who work on international affairs, the relationship between India and China is one of the great stories of our time. It will determine the future, not just in economic and financial matters, but also an increasing number of people believe with regard to great power politics. And if that is so, it is quite remarkable that these are two countries which for most of the 20th century seem to have had the back turned towards each other, where there has been relatively limited interaction, at least of a positive and peaceful nature. Now, there are exceptions to that, and I'm sure Ram is going to draw on some of those exceptions uh, today with regard to explaining the background for this relationship. But the fundamental event, I would dare to say, both from the Indian and from the Chinese perspective, is the war of 1962, which will very much be at the center of what we will be discussing today. Still today, in Delhi and in Beijing, it is that war that formulates the overall framework for how the elites within the two countries think of each other. They think of each other in very straightforward security terms. And it is quite remarkable when you think about the early history of Sino-Indian relations after the two countries got their new regimes in 1947 and 1949, respectively, that this should be so. Because it started out, as I'm sure Ron will explain to us later on today, in a very different manner. It started out as attempts at friendship, attempts at trying to draw upon uh, each other's experiences and comparisons from other parts of Asia. So the 62 war, in many ways, for Asians especially, was a profound shock. It was a reminder that it wasn't just imperialist powers that went to war with each other, that the great disasters of the 20th century, the First and the Second World War, both started in Europe, was not the whole story. That it was also possible for post-colonial regimes, like the ones in India and China, to end up in a situation where armed force was being used. So we're very lucky to have Ram here today to reflect on this, to talk a little bit about the background, to explain the general approaches of Nehru's policy with regard to China, and hopefully also both in his lecture and in the discussion afterwards to think a little bit about the relationship between these two signal countries today. Ram, it's a great pleasure to have you in LSE Ideas. We look forward to your second lecture. <coughs> Thank you, Ani. Thank you all. First, if I may begin with a, a, a caveat, those of you who were kind enough to come to my inaugural lecture on Gandhi, uh, I, the caveat is a disappointing one. 
there is only one joke in this whole lecture. <laughs> and it will come quite it's a long... It's a serious matter. You exactly. It'll, but there is one joke, and some of you will understand it, others, others won't, because it's a poem in Hindi that will come halfway through the lecture. But otherwise, as Arne says, it's a serious matter. It's about war, it's about humiliation, a national humiliation, and more particularly, personal humi humiliation. Uh, <coughs> the original title for my lecture was uh, more dramatic and perhaps as accurate. I was going to call it the war that killed Nehru. Uh, because the defeat, the military defeat at the hands of the Chinese army in 1962 was widely seen within India as really a personal humiliation for Nehru himself. <clears throat> Next year, uh, as Ani reminded us, will be the 50th anniversary of the war between India and China. Uh, and Nehru died a year and a half after that war. So it's almost 50 years since Nehru died. And his historical reputation has dramatically declined in that period. And when I reflect on what Nehru was like in his pomp in the late 40s and early 50s, when he was the uncrowned <laughs> prince of the Indian Republic, uh, and then I contrast that with how Nehru has been viewed subsequently, particularly in his homeland, which is also my homeland, I'm reminded of a remark by <clears throat> the great 19th century British radical Edward Carpenter who said that the outcast of an age is the hero of another. And when making this remark, Carpenter probably had himself in mind. He was a pioneering environmentalist. He started the first spoke abatement societies uh, in this country. And of course, his critique of uh, the environmental excesses of industrialization were not looked kindly upon uh, by the rising bourgeoisie. Even more daringly, he was a pioneering gay thinker who, who lived openly with his uh, gay partner, working class partner. He himself uh, was a Cambridge-educated mathematician. And Carpenter was thinking of himself when he said, the outcast of an age is the hero of another. Hmm. And Carpenter uh, was vindicated much later as a pioneer of the gay rights movement and indeed of global environmentalism. But when it comes to Gandhi, Carpenter's aphorism is, uh, I beg your pardon, when it comes to Nehru, uh, Carpenter's aphorism is correct in reverse. The hero of one age is the outcast of another. No Indian, not even Gandhi, was as revered as Nehru was in his pomp, and no Indian has been so denigrated and mocked and uh, despised uh, increasingly since his death. And Nehru is attacked from all sides. Uh, the free marketers, <coughs> uh, say that he erected a command economy which stifled our economic growth. The Gandhians claim he betrayed his master by <coughs> not focusing on village-centered economic development uh, and not <coughs> uh, being a teetotaler and not practicing celibacy and many other things. Uh, <laughs> the Marxists say he was a weak-kneed social reformer who did not expropriate the rich. The Hindu nationalists, of course, uh, detest and uh, absolutely hate him. And it's very hard to find a defender of Nehru in India today. I sometimes joke um, 
that I'm the youngest defender of India and Nehru today. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. The youngest defender of Nehru, uh, uh, who is an Indian citizen, is sitting in the second row today. Uh, he's a little younger than me, just a little bit younger than me. Uh, he's a distinguished political scientist who's a professor just across the road. But he's also, like me, the other side of 50. Whereas 80% of India is less than 35. So Nehru is, uh, you know, his historical reputation is completely at odds with uh, uh, what he was viewed uh, um, in, his, in his pomp. And someone who knew Nehru rather well, um, Lord Mountbatten, and who uh, lived much after Nehru, who, uh, who lived on for 25 odd years after Nehru, remarked in the 1980s, he said, if Jawaharlal Nehru had been died in, if Jawaharlal Nehru had died in 1958, he would be remembered as the greatest statesman of the century. That's a very interesting remark. And actually, Nehru uh, did not die in 1958, but he almost retired from public life in that year. He took a holiday in his native Kashmir and was wondering whether to give up the prime ministership. And uh, if he had given it up, it would have been far better for his historical reputation, possibly also for the Republic of India. Uh, but he was persuaded back. I mean, it's hard. Uh, it's uh, one of the most difficult decisions that particularly powerful men have to take. And they almost always get it wrong, is when to retire. Uh, uh, so after 1958 is when <coughs> the difficulties in Nehru's regime began. Before 1958, he was the architect of a modern nation state. Uh, the maker of a plural, inclusive democracy in a desperately poor and divided country. He stood for principle in public life. Uh, he opposed uh, uh, the Cold War uh, even-handedly, both the supervised uh, even-handedly and so on and so forth. But after 1958, you have the first signs of corruption in his government. In 1959, you have uh, Nehru's dismissal arbitrary and arguably illegal dismissal of a legally elected communist regime in the southern state of Kerala. And from then onwards, you have a series of border clashes with China culminating in the war of September, October 1962, uh, which was utter, an utter rout as far as the Indian army was concerned. And that debacle at the hands of China still hangs as a huge cloud over Nehru's reputation. Uh, the other ways in which he's criticized, I talked to the free marketers and the Marxists and the Gandhians, but it's really Nehru is re regarded as singularly responsible because Nehru was prime minister, he was also foreign minister all through his tenure as prime minister, and our relations with China, our policy towards China, uh, were really completely in his hands, and that defeat was then seen as his defeat. And there's an intriguing comparison to be made here between Nehru and his fellow Herovian, uh, Winston Churchill. There's a very fine book by, on Churchill, written by a British historian called Robert Rhodes James, which is called Churchill, colon, A Study in Failure. Churchill, colon, A Study in Failure. And it examines in very close detail Churchill's public life before 1940. You know, he was a disastrous <coughs> uh, first lord of the admiralty. You know, people blame some of the major defeats of the First World War on him. Uh, he was uh, uh, jumped from one party to another. 
He was an utter reactionary who never came to terms with the rise of the African and Asian nations, and so on and so forth. So it's a minute catalog of all his failures before he becomes prime minister. And just as in the historical memory of this country, all Churchill's failures are redeemed by that great victory, that once great success, his extraordinary, brave, and determined stewardship of his nation in the most difficult times of the Second World War, before the Americans and the Russians had joined the battle, that wiped out everything else. So hence uh, the title of Robert James' James's book, which stops in 1939. In the same way, one could argue that all Nehru's contributions uh, in the freedom movement, in forging uh, an independent India, in overseeing uh, the first democratic elections, uh, in against a bloody backdrop of partition, restoring some amount of harmony and tolerance between Hindus and Muslims, in building an industrial infrastructure, in forging an independent foreign policy, in uh, promoting linguistic pluralism. One of the reasons that the south of India, which I come from, is still part of India, is that Nehru resisted uh, uh, the the kind of fanatical attempts of the Hindi zealots of the north to impose their language all over the country. But all of this was nullified by that one defeat uh, at the hands of China. So this talk is going to investigate <coughs> the relations between India and China through the prism of Nehru and what he did, what he did not do, what he's alleged to have done, what he's alleged not to have done. Nehru's fascination with China goes back a very long time. In the early 1930s, well before India became independent, he published his first book called Glimpses of World History. And this book has as many as 134 index references to China. These refer to, among other things, different dynasties, the Tang, the, tang, the Han, the Qin, to corruption, communism, civil war, agriculture, banditry. Now, Nehru is taking a book like this called Glimpses of World History. You know, we're living in 2011, and there are LSE students here uh, <coughs> who would be told in their classes in international politics and international history all about the Eurocentric discourse of uh, Western historians. Well, they were far more Eurocentric probably in the 1930s. And here is Nehru already uh, seeing the significance of China in the global picture. And along with a great importance on China in that early book of Nehru's is a pairing of China and India. So he calls China the other great country of Asia, India's old time friend. And there is a manifest sympathy with China's troubles at the hands of foreigners. The British are chastised for forcing down opium down the throats of Chinese. This being an illustration of what Nehru calls the growing arrogance and interference by Western powers. And even more notable than the criticism of the British is Nehru's chastisement of the Japanese, which indulged, he says, in imperialist aggression against the Chinese. Uh, his criticism of the Japanese, which indulged in imperial aggression of the Chinese. Speaking of the wars between the two nations in the 1890s, Nehru writes, no scruples had ever troubled Japan in the pursuit of her imperial policy. She grabbed openly, not caring even to cover her designs with a veil. A second edition of the book published in the late 1930s judged 
Japan even more harshly because it was now conducting a new war against China. So he says, the Japanese tried to make Chinese resistance by vast and horrible massacres from the air and other methods of unbelievable barbarity. You know, now of course the rape of Nanking, these are all commonplaces of historical understanding, but here is a man writing at the time these events are happening. And then he says, however, in this fiery ordeal against Japan, a new nation was forged in China and the old lethargy of the Chinese people dropped away. The sympathy of the people of India was naturally with the Chinese people. The sympathy of the people of India, I'd like to flag that sentence, the sympathy of the people of India was naturally with the Chinese people. And the sympathy of that particular Indian was especially uh, there with the Chinese people. And Nehru goes to China in 1939 at the invitation of Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, he spends two weeks there. He uh, plans to spend much longer, but then war breaks out in, in Europe. And he has to rush back to India because the breakout of the war necessitates a change in the strategy of the Indian freedom struggle. And Nehru is wanted to consult with his colleague in the Congress party. So he comes back. And then he writes about his visit to China. He says, this visit was memorably, memorable. This visit was memorable for me personally and for the future relations of India and China. You know, like de Gaulle and Churchill and many other people, Nehru was never shy of identifying his country with himself. So he says, uh, you know, he had that sense of great uh, certitude and confidence that many remarkable statesmen have. So he says that visit was memorable for me and for the relations of India and China. I found to my joy that my desire that India and China should draw closer together was fully reciprocated by China's leaders. I returned to India an even greater admirer of China and the Chinese people. And I could not imagine that any adverse fate would break the spirit of these ancient people. Shortly afterwards, Nehru was jailed. And he spent much of the war in a colonial prison. And while in prison, he wrote uh, an extraordinary book called The Discovery of India, which is a rambling, idiosyncratic, eccentric, insightful romp through many, many centuries of Indian history. And in that book, as in his earlier writings, he stresses the relation between India and China as manifest in the exchange of ideas and artifacts by pilgrims, mystics, scholars, travelers, and diplomats. During the thousand years of intercourse between India and China, writes Nehru, each country learned something from the other. Probably China was more influenced by India than India by China. Now this appears to be a nationalist comment, but just see what is uh, followed by. Probably China was more influenced by India than India by China, which is a pity, for India could well have received, with profit to herself, some of the sound common sense of the Chinese, and with aid, checked her own extravagant fancies. I think this is a, a line which I think bears repeating in 2011, uh, that the sound common sense of the Chinese, whatever it may mean in very different ways, could be something the Indians could <coughs> learn from. Now, Nehru is writing at the end of the Second World War. And in this book, The Discovery of India, there's an extraordinary passage which I'm going to read to you because it anticipates the world we now live in. <clears throat> Yesterday, I had lunch with a very distinguished uh, 
British historian, uh, who's writing a book on how the world today sort of uh, uh, <coughs> replicates the concert of European concert of powers of the early 19th century. You know, so there's this whole argument about a multipolar world, and it's coming back in fashion. And uh, or not coming back in fashion. For the first time, people are recognizing that we are living in a multipolar world. And Nehru may have been uh, really someone who anticipated this in this book published in 1946. I'm going to quote. He says, Nehru could see the decline of Great Britain because of the war and the emergence of the US and the Soviet Russia as the two major powers. But this bipolar world would be become a multipolar world. So Nehru writes, I quote, China and India are potentially capable of joining the group, the group of USA and Soviet Union. China and India are potentially capable of joining that group. Each of them is compact and homogeneous, full of natural wealth, manpower, and human skill and capacity. No other country taken singly apart from these four, that is Russia, USA, China, and India, is actually or potentially in such a position. Then he adds, it is possible, of course, that large federations of groups of nations may emerge in Europe and form huge multinational states. Now, this is absolutely prescient, writing in 1945-46. Now, to return to the India-China question. <coughs> if you look at Nehru's writings before India became independent, he saw China <coughs> from the lens of a progressive anti-imperialist. Nehru was a progressive anti-imperialist with an emphasis both on the progressive and on the anti-imperialist. So China, like India, was emerging out of centuries of Western colonial exploitation. Uh, it was finding its own feet. And China, like India, had a nationalist leadership that was progressive, that was outlook-looking, that was modernizing, that didn't hark back excessively. It harked back maybe partly to a great and glorious past, but wanted to come to terms with a complex interdependent world driven by science and technology. So <coughs> the Chinese nationalists, like the Indian nationalists, were at once freedom fighters, national unifiers, and social modernizers. So that was Nehru's uh, kind of um, perspective on China. I'm going to move very quickly on. There are many other aspects of this relationship uh, which, unfortunately, I can't deal with, one of which is a, uh, a visionary conference that Nehru held in 1947 uh, in New Delhi uh, called the Asian Relations Conference, which was an attempt to get all the nations of Asia free or still under colonial rule on a kind of common platform. But let me move on to 1950, three years after the independence of India and one year after the communist victory in China. In 1950, as all of you know, the Chinese invaded Tibet. And Nehru's great contemporary and deputy prime minister, Sardar Vallabhai Patel, wrote Nehru a letter, uh, which again was shortage of time, I won't quote, but it's an extraordinary letter which warns Nehru not to take Chinese intentions and professions on trust which tells Nehru that while the Chinese speak of socialist internationalism, while they speak of communist equality, all this talk is a cloak for nationalist ambition. And then Patel goes on to argue that 
In some cases, the communists can be even more jingoistic in their nationalism than the capitalists. Now, that's a letter, a striking letter written by his, in a sense, uh, someone who's almost an equal in the cabinet. But Nehru sort of neglects that warning. He says that, you know, uh, can we really take on the Chinese? Shortly afterwards, Patel dies. And we don't know what would have happened if Patel had lived several years longer. Uh, but when Patel dies, Nehru is really completely sovereign in his Congress party and the government. He has really no one who is an intellectual or a political equal to him. And he continues to see, as he had before 1947, China as a kindred soul, <coughs> uh, uh, embarked, like India, on autonomous industrial and social development, albeit under communist auspices. And he continues to believe that, as in the thousand years of the past, these two great civilizations, now new, proud, confident nations, would interact and learn from one another. In 1954, Nehru visits Beijing and is met with a rapturous welcome. And I'm going to quote uh, from the diaries of his security officer, Nehru security officer, the policeman who went with Nehru, says, in Beijing, <coughs> a million people lined the roads to greet and cheer Nehru and Zhao, Chao as they drove in an open car. All along the route, not a single policeman in uniform was visible. Then Nehru visited Canton, Deren, and Nanking, and at each place the cheers became louder, the clapping more vigorous. At each place, we felt nothing could be better than the reception given there. Then we moved on and found that there was something better, Shanghai. There the airport was a mass of people waving flowers. There were so many flowers that they seemed to change the color of the airport. Now, this was certainly a flattered Nehru. Uh, but also convinced him, it would have flattered him, uh, but it, I think it convinced him, and this is a more important point, <coughs> it convinced him of the popular support for the regime, not a policeman in sight, and of, the desire, and of the regime's desire for friendship with India, that in every city that he went to, hundreds of thousands of people had come to welcome this Indian leader. And after his uh, visit to China, he writes to his closest friend, Edwina Mountbatten, and I'm going to quote, I had a welcome in China such as I have in the big cities of India, and that is saying something. So he seemed to think that he was as much of a hero in China as he was in the big cities of India. One million took part on the day of my arrival. It was not the numbers, but their obvious enthusiasm. There appeared to be something emotional in it. So, you know, he's sort of thinking of a kind of uh, a desire. He's seeing this reception, this rapturous reception, as a manifestation of a larger social and national desire of the Chinese people for friendship with India. So the two great nations would once more be joined together. Shortly afterwards, in 1956, Chao Enlai comes to India. And Chao Enlai's visit coincides with the visit of the Dalai Lama uh, to India. And this is the 2000. Uh, 500th anniversary of the birth of Buddha, so which is why the Dalai Lama has come. And there's a drive outside Delhi. They go to see a large dam project outside Delhi. And on the drive back, the Dalai Lama escapes his Chinese minders and sits in Nehru's car. And he tells Nehru, I want to 
come, come to it. I want to migrate. It's just truly awful. In the six years since the Chinese have been here, it's completely suffocating the military presence, the hostility to our religion, our faith. I can't live. I want to move. You know, I can't stay here. I want to move out. Nehru says, no, 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 you go back. Nehru persuades him to go back and says, I'll talk to the Chinese. Uh, and then he talks to the Chinese <clears throat> and uh, says that, you know, please take this Tibetan issue seriously. The Chinese say, oh, well, you can come and see it for yourself. A visit is fixed when Nehru is supposed to visit uh, Tibet in 1958, but <coughs> eventually, uh, you know, the invitation is withdrawn. I can't, I have not seen the, um, the archival documents, maybe Ani uh, can help locate them in Beijing. So we'll know why the, what the official reason, what the euphemistic reason given, was given by the Chinese for refusing Nehru permission to visit, <coughs> to visit uh, uh, Tibet. Anyway, <coughs> around that time, they're the first signs of a breach between the two countries. Mm. In 1957, there's a revelation of a road being built by the Chinese over a desolate high plateau called Aksai Chin, which is claimed by India as part of the district of Ladakh. And there's a road being built by the Chinese, and there's some wandering uh, nomads uh, from the Indian side who discover this and report back. And then, then there's a kind of uh, angry exchange of letters between the Chinese foreign ministry and in Indian foreign ministry. And in 1959, this conflict is intensified when the Dalai Lama, in April of that year, flees after an unsuccessful revolt, is put down by the People's Army, flees and comes into India via <coughs> the eastern Himalaya, what is now the state of Arunachal Pradesh. And also, just before and just after the Dalai Lama's flight to India, uh, there are some border clashes. Now, the Dalai Lama's <coughs> flight is actually absolutely fundamental, and I think uh, perhaps not adequate, uh, fundamentally understanding the rift between India and China, and perhaps not adequately understood uh, the consequences of that flight, uh, because he is a great and venerated spiritual leader. So the Indians have to give him refuge. They don't, of course, uh, allow him to make political speeches, but he's treated sort of like a honored guest. Uh, but while he is, uh, the Dalai Lama is uh, told by Nehru and his ruling Congress party not to make political statements. The opposition parties have a field day. And, uh, you know, particularly the socialists, the Indian socialists who in the late 1950s were extremely influential politically and who are anti-communist and hence uh, <coughs> deeply opposed to the Chinese occupation of Tibet. And they organize these rallies uh, where uh, they go and protest all over India against the Chinese. They go and march on the Ch Chinese consulate. Uh, for example, in Bombay, there's an incident where uh, there are these portraits of Mao outside the Chinese consulate, and the socialists go and march, and then throw rotten eggs and tomatoes on the portrait of Mao, and deface it. And there's this really angry, bewildered and angry letter from the Chinese to the Indians saying, how could you allow this? How could you deface, allow your people to deface? You say you believe in India-China friendship, how could you allow your people to deface the portrait of our beloved uh, leader? And uh, you know, the Indian Foreign Office replies saying we're a democracy and we can't stop people protesting on the streets and so on and so forth. And then the Chinese say we will not forget it even for a thousand years. This is actually a letter. This is a letter in, in, in we will not forget this inside even for a thousand years. So this is the first signs of disenchantment. Now at this stage, Nehru writes a um, <coughs> a letter to his chief ministers, sort of acknowledging <coughs> that he was wrong in 1950, when he told Patel uh, to disregard uh, you know, the kind of 
Chinese nationalist ambitions. And he says, uh, we have now a strong and united Chinese state, expansive and pushing out in various directions and full of pride in its growing strength. There is an actual, there is a potential conflict between India and China, but probably not something that will, you know, result in actual war. Mm. So we need greater cohesion in face of Chinese cohesion, but uh, he doesn't really think that there's going to be a full-fledged war. But as a precautionary measure, Nehru sanctions from 1959 a series of what are called forward posts. Now the India-China border is a very complicated issue, but just to give you a very quick summary, there are two areas, the west of India and the east. In the west, <coughs> historically, Indian claims were much stronger. But Chinese interests were much stronger because they needed this road that I mentioned to link the troublesome provinces of Tibet and Xinjiang. In the east, the Indian historical claims were much weaker and the Chinese interest was also weaker. But there were large areas that were not filled in. There was a border that was drawn in 1913 by a British official uh, after a pact signed by, between the Indians and the Tibetans. But the Chinese never recognized that line. It was called the McMahon line and they never recognized that. They said it was a relic of imperialism. So <clears throat> you have this conflict emerging in the 19, uh, late 1950s. Uh, in 1960, Chow and Lai comes to New Delhi to forge a compromise. And he meets very many people. And he basically tells Nehru, he says that, look, let's do a deal. Uh, in the, where we need the road to Tibet, you don't really are concerned about that. Mm. Where our historical claims are strong in the east, Arunachal Pradesh, you can have that. So you overlook our transgressions in the west and we will overlook your transgressions in the east and we'll just cut a deal and forget about it. Now, actually smart, pragmatic thinking. And if that had been accepted by Nehru then, there may never have been a war and there may have been today an India-China block against Soviet Union, America, Brazil, X, Y, Z. But of course, this was not possible because India was a democracy. You know, Chao and Lai could take the approval of a central committee and offer this kind of deal, treaty. But once uh, the evidence of these border wars, uh, border clashes had come out in the public domain, once there was real anger among many Indians about the flight of Dalai Lama, Nehru had to discuss it in parliament, uh, people against his own party were totally opposed. You know, then the national sentiments are aroused about how can you give even a single inch to these perfidious, perfidious communists and so on. So Chawal Lai comes in a last ditch effort to try and forge a compromise. And it's a fascinating, uh, the, the, the transcripts of his uh, discussions with, uh, uh, with the Indian officials are fascinating, particularly his discussion with the Indian finance minister, Muraji Desai, <coughs> Uh, who is at that stage really Nehru's uh, second, uh, second in command in the government. And Chawan Lai says, how did you allow that uh, uh, demonstration in the uh, Chinese consulate to deface beloved Chairman Mao's photograph? And Muraji Desai tells him, I'm finance minister. Every year, every year when I present my annual budget, my effigy is burnt in the Indian streets. <laughs> and then... <coughs> And then uh, Chawan Lai says, how could you give that you know, reactionary, uh, the Dalai Lama uh, refuge in your country? And Muraji Desai, being a very smart and alert man, now sadly forgotten and underrated in the industry, replies to this. He says, uh, 
uh, <coughs> pardon me, comrade, but isn't it true that when Karl Marx fled his native Germany, he was given refuge by the United Kingdom? <laughs> uh, so, or Lenin was given refuge in, in Switzerland and so on. So, this last ditch attempt breaks down and Chao goes back. And in 1962, there is this humiliating <coughs> uh, defeat where after following some clashes, the Chinese troops invade. <coughs> uh, there's fierce fighting in the west where the Indians sort of hold their own. But in the east, the Chinese come right down the Brahmaputra Valley to the town of Tezpur in Assam. They have Calcutta in their sights. And the Indian brigades have retreated completely and utterly. They are in sh a shambles. But the Chinese unilaterally declare a ceasefire and having humiliated the Indian army, go back, <coughs> uh, go back from where they've come. Now, um, <coughs> there are various explanations as to why the Chinese attacked when they did. Firstly, there are various explanations as to what caused the war. You know, the comfortable Indian explanation is <coughs> Chinese expansionism and Chinese aggression. Uh, the counter to that is uh, uh, <coughs> the revisionism of some scholars, particularly an Australian scholar, I think maybe a New Zealander scholar called Neville Maxwell, who wrote a book arguing that China, India was responsible for the war because it was really the forward post uh, promoted by Nehru that provoked an otherwise peaceful and tolerant and non-violent China uh, to uh, you know, retaliate in self-defense. But of course, it really is much more complicated, the causes of the war. I'll come to that. But I'm not going to really go into the causes of the war, nor into why the Chinese attacked when they did. There's also a vast literature. Was it a distraction from the Great Leap Forward? Was it an attempt by Mao to reassert control? Uh, was it uh, because uh, the USA and the USSR were involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis, so no one would really care if they attacked India and so on? But I'm going to, since my, the focus of my talk is Nehru and what that military debacle means for Nehru's uh, reputation, posthumous reputation. I'm going to come back to that. So within India, <coughs> then and now, there are three views of Nehru and the Chinese debacle. The first view is empathetic, that Nehru was a good man betrayed by perfidious communists. This view is held by the declining tribe of Nehruvians, Congress supporters, and a large swath of the elderly middle class. You know, in my own family, after the debacle, Nehru went on a tour to collect money for the Indian Defense Fund. And he came to my hometown of Dehradun, and uh, he gave an emotional speech. And my mother took off her diamond earrings and gold bangles and gave it into a bucket which went to the Indian Defense Fund. And of course, she's still widely mocked uh, uh, in the family for that, but that's not how upper caste, prudent housewives are supposed to behave. But it's a manifestation, of course, of her love and admiration for Nehru, and this was very common. But um, this empathetic view that Nehru was betrayed by the perfidious Chinese, and this is the one joke I had promised you I'm coming to, uh, this, uh, this empathetic view is, con is uh, eloquently expressed in a novel by Rukun Advani called Nehru's Children. Uh, 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 the novel is called Beethoven Among the Cows, I beg your pardon, Beethoven Among the Cows. There's a chapter called Nehru's Children which recounts the war from the perspective of a small town in North India, probably Lucknow. And uh, it says <coughs> that the people in Lucknow were spouting couplets shot through with Nehru's 
Shellian idealism on the socialist brotherhood of men, a brotherhood now being denied and violated by the awful wicked Chinese. <laughs> and this sense that Nehru was betrayed by the Chinese is then captured by the novelist in four couplets, which are in Hindi, so I should read it out because at least some members of the audience will understand Hindi. And the novelist who I've contacted since assures me that they are largely a representation of the kinds of things that were said in Lucknow at that time. But you know, he's a novelist, so he may have made up some of it. But I, let, me, let me read out the couplets and I'll translate them. I won't read out all four, I'll read out two maybe. Jaise dood or malai, Hindi chini bhai bhai. Jaise dood or malai, Hindi chini bhai bhai. Hosh me ao, hosh me ao, chao mao, hosh me ao. Okay, and uh, this is a much better one, so wait. Jaise noodle, vaise pulao. Nehru saath chaumin khao. Jaise noodle, vaise pulao. Nehru saath chaumin khao. Chao mao hosh me ao. Hosh me ao or chaumin khao. Now, uh, I should, I'm sorry, I'll have to, uh, for the, those of you who don't know Hindi, I'll have to attempt a rather crude uh, translation or summary of what these, what these couplets say. Essentially, these verses and this, these verses ask the Chinese leaders to shake hands with Nehru, eat chow mein with him, and generally come to their senses. Now, this is the empathetic view, uh, which is rapidly in decline, by the way, now. And my mother, maybe the last person alive who represents this view still, uh, that he was a good man betrayed by the Chinese. The second view is diametrically opposed to this. This says, or this argues, this view is contemptuous. It says, Nehru was a fool and vain man who betrayed the nation by encouraging the Chinese in their aggressive designs on the sacred soil of India. And this argument is associated above all <coughs> with ideologues of the Hindu right, uh, you know, who are with the RSS or the Bharatiya Janda Party or such organizations. In the early 1960s, <coughs> the RSS chief wrote witheringly that the slogans and paper compromises called peaceful coexistence that our leaders were indulging in have served as a camouflage for the self-seeking predatory countries of the world. China was most vociferous in the expression of faith in peaceful coexistence. China was adopted as our great neighbor and friend for the last 2,000 years, and they have attacked, it, attacked us. The third view, which is in some ways the most interesting, so there's the one view which is empathetic, Nehru was betrayed by the Chinese. The second view, which is contemptuous, is a fool and vain man who encouraged the Chinese. The third view uh, is uh, essentially pitying that Nehru was a naive man uh, misled by his malign advisors or by his own rather innocent idealism. And the person who articulated this view uh, at that time, 1959-60, when the first border clashes happened, uh, the person who articulated this view most eloquently was one of the great forgotten or underrated figures of, of modern India, a man called C. Rajagopalachari, uh, who was a close associate of Nehru in the freedom struggle, who was a visionary thinker, philosopher, short story writer, translator, and so on, and who in 1959 broke with Nehru and with decades of association with the Cong Congress party to start a free market libertarian party called Swatantra. And he wrote several essays <coughs> arguing that Nehru should abandon non-alignment and side with the West. And he said this, this change, I mean, 
Rajagopalachari or Rajaji as he was known had no illusions about the imperialist past of the West or uh, their real um, uh, their military industrial complex. He didn't use the term uh, which is coined later but he argued in similar language. For example, he was the, a prophetic opponent of nuclear testing and the arms race and so on. So he had no illusions about the West but he said that he quoted uh, <coughs> he quoted a verse of the ancient Tamil classic the Kural of Tiruvalluvar, which read in his translation, you have no allies, you are faced with two enemies. You have no allies, in a complex interdependent, no nation has allies, you have no allies. You, have, you are faced with two enemies, make it up with one of them and make of him a good ally. Uh, so in this rendering, uh, given <coughs> the aggressive expansionism of the Chinese, India had to ally with the U.S. reluctantly, recognizing the hypocrisy of the U.S., recognizing, as Rajari well knew, the U.S.'s dreadful record in 1959 on race relations and so on and so forth. Still, uh, real politics compared this. Now, these three views have been were held in the were articulated in the immediate aftermath of the 1962 war and continue to be articulated since. In the first few years, in the late early to, uh, 60s to the late 60s, the first view was dominant. You know, the view that held that Nehru was a good man, a decent man, betrayed by the Chinese, and the Chinese had even killed him. You know, and this was widely held view even within government. One reason, by the way, that through the 70s and 80s, there were virtually no diplomatic relations, is that Nehru's daughter Indira Gandhi was in power in India. And when the Chinese made overtures, in fact, Deng made overtures from the late 70s onwards, uh, uh, you know, often, this memory that the Chinese had killed Nehru was uh, you know, part of why uh, there was absolutely no uh, you know, truck. Later on, in the 80s and 90s, uh, you had the Hindutva view becoming dominant. Nehru was a foolish and vain man who betrayed India. And now, in the last few years, you have the Rajaji kind of view becoming more uh, prominent, particularly in the strategic community uh, in New Delhi, where you have one school of thought that vigorously argues that you need an India-US access to combat the Chinese. Now, <coughs> I'm going to have another 10 minutes. I'm going to come quickly towards the end of my talk and move from how Nehru's attitude towards the Chinese has been perceived in these three broad contending schools, the empathetic, the contemptuous, and the pitying. And I'm going to move to a brief analysis of the war itself and Nehru's role in it. It's clear in retrospect <coughs> that between 1950, when the Tibet <coughs> invasion happened, and 1962, when the war happened, Nehru made a series of strategic errors and miscalculations in his dealings with China. These miscalculations were of three kinds. First, personal, that some people he trusted, particularly his utterly incompetent and actually vain and foolish defense minister, Krishnamenon, mm. was kept in the post far too long. Uh, even when uh, he should really have been sacked. So there was, he trusted, and there were several other advisors, including some appointments in the military and so on, with Nehru sanctioned, which were clear, even at the time, were the wrong personal choices. So there were personal errors, there were political errors. <coughs> his ignorance, namely, his ignorance of that nationalist underpinning of Chinese communism, you know, that, the, that Chinese communism was at heart nationalist. And the third kind of error he made was strategic the refusal to properly arm and train the military. 
the war happened in September, October 1962. <coughs> in May of that year, six years, six months before the war, uh, a person widely regarded as the, 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 you know, almost India's only thinking general ever, uh, uh, with some exaggeration, maybe in two or three, but, um, uh, but I can't say about it. Maybe the UK hasn't had a thinking general either since Second World War. I don't know about that, but anyway. But the man widely regarded as India's thinking general, a man called General Thimaya, wrote an article uh, in the Delhi magazine in May of 1962, where he said that war with China is overwhelmingly likely very soon. The only, there are two ways to forestall it. One, ally with the West and have a military alliance with the West. Because Krishna Menon, who was defense minister, you know, was a, was a kind of, uh, uh, you know, really an obsessively anti-American, anti-Western socialist who may have got that orientation not far from the LSE. In fact, one of the institutions he founded is just across the road, as it happens. But anyway, that's a, that's a, that's a separate thing. So Timbaya wrote this. He said, either you ally with the West, or you strike a deal with the Chinese uh, uh, you know, uh, on, on the border dispute, because as things stand, our army is incapable of defending our borders against the Chinese. So this is May 1962, but of course, he was disregarded. Uh, <coughs> and the war happened. Now. So Nehru made a series of errors, but yet it's my view as a historian that India and China would very likely have gone to war if Nehru had never lived, if Nehru had retired as prime minister in 1958, if he had died in 1958 or whatever. I believe that beyond the personal role of Nehru, there were important structural reasons why the clash of 1962 took place. The first structural reason <coughs> was the question of Tibet. The Tibet factor in India-China relations had three dimensions. <coughs> There's the long-term dimension, which is the boundaries imposed by the British under the McMahon line of 1913, which the Indians affirmed as inviolable and everlasting, and the Chinese said were imperialist. That's the long-term dimension. There's the medium-term dimension, which is to do with the Chinese occupation of Tibet in 1950 and the security problems it created. And there's the short-term dimension, namely the flight of the Dalai Lama and the fact that India had to protect him and that this necessarily irked the Chinese, it still does. In fact, last week, there were supposed to be border talks uh, in, in Delhi. And the Dalai Lama was addressing a worldwide conclave of Buddhist thinkers in Delhi. And the Chinese said, you must not allow the Dalai Lama to speak. And when the Indian government refused, you know, <coughs> Uh, the talks were cancelled. So that still remains a proximate question, the Tibet question. That's one aspect which divided the two countries. The second is the difference between democracy and dictatorship. That the quid pro quo, the, on the face of it, very logical, sensible compromise advocated by Chow and Lai. We need access in the West, and you don't care about the West. You need access about <coughs> Uh, east and we don't care about the East, so we'll just strike a deal. That's possible in a dictatorship, but simply not possible in a democracy where you have to have debate and dissent, and then of course opposition parties would go to town on, on the concessions you're making to the enemy. And thirdly, one, I think a very important reason why uh, the two countries went to war were the respective national and civil, civilizational aspirations of the two countries. Here are two large countries with ancient histories uh, with proud memories uh, come out of a struggle against imperialism 
and em embarking on autonomous economic and political development, and they are bound to clash at the border. Um, and the striking thing about that clash at the border, from the Indian point of view, <coughs> is uh, how few people died. I think a few, few thousand, three thousand something people died. Now, when you think of wars that the Chinese fought, and or, or, or wars in this country, that's a niggardly figure. Uh, <coughs> there's a massive disproportion between how the Indians view the war of 1962 and the Chinese view the war of 1962. Uh, in India, it is still seen as a great humiliation. The Chinese, to the contrary, are not triumphalist about it. They don't see it as a great victory. They, because they fought much more bloody wars against the Japanese and so on. And this asymmetry is reflected also in the writings of historians such as myself. You know, I wrote a book on the history of independent India, and there are two chapters on the India-China war. Uh, you know, anyone writing a book, biography of Nehru, would have a lot on China. Uh, but if you see recent modern histories of China, you know, there'll be a few paragraphs. Uh, biography of Mao or Chao Lai, India would rarely figure. So that's a very interesting point for, to reflect on. Why is there such an asymmetry between how the war is viewed uh, in India and in China? I'll just end with uh, some reflections on where I started. What does the war with China and what it signif signified before and after mean for how we should consider Nehru's posthumous legacy? It's my view that the conventional wisdom is that Nehru's great mistakes were vis-a-vis -vis economics and vis-a-vis -vis China. That's how people judge him harshly. Mm. And I think this is utterly wrong. Those were not his great mistakes. With regard to economics, uh, every scientist and economist in the India of the 1950s believed in the state occupying the commanding heights of the economy. Even the industrial class did. If you look at a plan prepared by the leading capitalist called the Bombay Plan, they wanted greater state, state intervention. That was just the climate of the times. And actually, Nehru built, through his policies, built a sound scientific and technical infrastructure. The time for India to open up was the late 1960s, not the late 1940s. And don't forget that India had been colonized by a Western multinational corporation, the East India Company. So they were, the fears of Western financial capital dominating India were very real. So I think it's mistaken to criticize him on economics. It's also mistaken to criticize him on China, though he did make a series of mistakes some kind of clash, and in this case as it happens, a pretty minor clash, some kind of clash was written into the historical, political, and civilizational, and geographical logics of the two countries. This is not to say Nehru did not make mistakes. Uh, his really serious mistakes were, one, in the domain of education and health. Uh, he gave completely no emphasis to primary education or to health. If you look at the ministers he appointed, they were disastrous choices. He hardly ever wrote about education and health. Uh, you know, he appointed uh, a great Indian nationalist uh, as Minister of Education, but this was a man who was very bitter and defeated by the fact of partition and retreated into a shell and really did really nothing uh, proactive for 10 or 11 years. With regard to health, Nehru appointed, uh, again, a great Indian nationalist, a very brave woman who had given up uh, life as a Maharani, as a, prince, uh, as a princess, to join the freedom struggle. But for all this, she was both a Catholic and a Gandhian. And to put her in charge of family planning and so on was uh, <laughs> not, shall we say, the most judicious or uh, far-sighted move. Uh, so Nehru's mistakes were in the realm of education and health, and I would say particularly in the failure to build uh, a team of co-workers, the way in which Gandhi 
built his collaborators, the way in which Gandhi organized the succession to Nehru. So Nehru can be faulted on many things, but not on economics and certainly not on China. And I'm going to end with just this line. Whether admirers or critics of Nehru, Indians should stop taking China or stop taking the defeat of 1962 so seriously. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ram, for that excellent uh, overview, which I'm sure has stimulated a lot of, uh, lot of questions in the audience. And before moving to the audience, one question I have to ask you, now, sort of on behalf of Nero, who is not here. Um, you were talking about the, the mistakes that were made. And I think that was a, I mean, from what I know of this war, which is basically from the Chinese side, much more than from the Indian side. That seems to make sense. But what I was thinking about is the strategic situation, I mean, in terms of strategic choices that Nehru made. What kind of options did he really have? Because the one thing that you, you, you only touched on in passing, so of course, not just relationships to the United States, but also the relationship to the Soviet Union. And I have no doubt whatsoever that what saved India from a much, much worse mauling at the hand of, hands of the Chinese in 1962 was the, uh, the prospect uh, which greatly troubled the Chinese of the Soviet Union becoming more actively engaged on, on the Indian side. Now, if that is indeed the case, it leaves us wondering, was there more that Nehru could have done in the lead up to the war to deter the Chinese in terms of the strategic choices that he made amongst the great powers in the world in, in a broad perspective? What do you think of that? Yeah, I think uh, you're right. I mean, it was very difficult. Uh, uh, so the mistakes uh, were really, in, in a sense, personal. You know, I think he could have made better appointments in the military, in the defense forces. Uh, he could have had a wider uh, basket of you know, armed suppliers, and that would have minimized the defeat. Mm -hmm. uh, but in that sense, uh, he couldn't really have allied uh, as strongly with Raja Gopalachari said in 1959 to allies strongly with the Americans. But I think mm. in some ways that was impossible. Mm. And there's a very interesting uh, letter which I could didn't quote, but your question, I'll just see if I have it here and I'll just quickly quote from it. Nehru, you know, when he actually says, he has, after the war happens, he says that the war happens because uh, the Chinese want to destroy non-alignment. Mm. He says, you, he talks about the growing uh, Soviet uh, uh, Chinese rift and it says, the Chinese I want a clear polarization of the different countries in the world. Mm. And the Russia softening down, the, the softening down of revolutionary order in Russia is annoying China. And because of that, uh, Russia is helping India and the Chinese have attacked us. Mm. So they want to heighten tensions in the world, mm. uh, attack us and polarize the world again into two blocks in which they and the Russians will be on one side and the Indians and the Americans on the other. Mm. So it's a very interesting analysis of the war mm. which suggests that the Chinese may have been actually wanting a much clearer, clearer polarization. But mm. you're quite, you're absolutely right that, you know, there was, it was hard for Nehru in the context of the world as it was uh, to you know, to, uh, take a kind of, uh, to abandon non-alignment, particularly with Pakistan, yeah. which then already had arms back to the Russian, with the Americans and so on. Yeah. Mm. There's one, uh, just, you show hands in terms of asking questions, but it is very interesting that from the Chinese side, I mean, particularly the new kind of information we have access to now, a lot of people at the time thought that this was a war that they were forced into. Mm. 
Mm. I mean, they put a great deal of emphasis on what they saw as aggressive, I mean, in military terms, aggressive, forward Indian, Indian, Indian behavior uh, with regard to the border issues. Um, whether that is true in terms of what made China go to war eventually, or, or true in the sense of being the main reason, we don't know. But it certainly was an element that was there. Questions? Yes, sir, in the middle, over there. Just wait for the mic, if you could, please. And who else? Yeah. Young man, second. That's right. We take two, two questions at a time. Please, sir. Swami Nathan from BBC World Service. You talked about the situation in the 50s. Now, at present, do you feel any similarity between these two? Because at the 50s, leaders of India and China met. There were, what again, tensions in the border. In, now, what we see is the same tensions is happening in the border. There was a defense forward area, defense policy at the 50s. Now India is thinking of creating new divisions without really thinking about what it takes to fight the high altitude war and things like that. Is that means India has not really learned anything from the hmm. last 50 years? Hmm. Good question. Yeah. yeah, over there. Yes, please. So in terms of a, like a different perspective on this, so you talk about how China doesn't see the war with India as an important thing, but how they view the Dalai Lama as a really important issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. How important is the fact that India just sort of says, we're a democracy, we're going to allow the Dalai Lama to do what he likes, even though it, to some extent, actively endangers our interests with China, with the sort of stability that we like. Um, how important is it that we let that continue um, with, in, in respect to our relationship with China? Hmm. Ram, you have two very yeah. good questions. Yeah, yeah very, both, both fascinating questions. Uh, I have a, uh, I, so I think probably a more convincing uh, answer towards uh, the second and the first, and that's simply because I'm not really a strategic military thinker. That's not things I understand at all, uh, you know, temperamentally. Uh, my sense is that, uh, uh, my sense, again, I'm just throwing this out. This may be nine Heruvian idealism at work here. But the Chinese are not going to go to war again against India. You know, the battles they want to win are in the marketplace. And there may be all kinds of issues about unfair trade practices. I mean, one of the, there's a growing trade with China, but it's asymmetrical trade. And in some, in some ways, it's a colonial trade because they give us finished products, including cricket balls, by the way. Indian, many Indian cricket balls are now made in China. And we give them you know, minerals. You know, uh, the Beijing Olymp uh, Olympics was built partly on the back of you know, iron and um, uh, aluminum mined in India. So it's a very comp But uh, is it going to be lead to full? There are certainly people in India who think so. You know, there's a lot of paranoia. Uh, uh, you know, there's a string of pearls that the Chinese have built a port in Gwadar in the uh, west, uh, western coast of uh, Pakistan. Then they've come down to Trincomalee in, in, in uh, Sri Lanka. Then they've gone further up the uh, Indian Ocean to uh, Chittagong in Bangladesh. And there's also a port that's coming up in Burma and it's all encircling and so on. Now, uh, I mean, that's probably, you know, uh, there's a great game, but it's in China versus the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis control to the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, you know, trade, trade supplies, energy, and so on. So, obviously, India needs to be vigilant and so on. But I think that kind of border, uh, it's hard to see how that would happen. There are other kinds of wars that the Chinese would like to fight. And uh, my views uh, on that would be also, and this again may be naive Nehruvian idealism at work here, that, uh, and this I'm actually following <coughs> the thinking of someone who's not naive, uh, Professor Sunil Khinani who's here, that I India is in a situation today where it doesn't have to choose. You know, that the argument that India has to ally with the Americans because that's the only, I mean, India is what Professor Khinani calls a bridging power. You know, it can have very interesting, positive relations between uh, 
China, the US, uh, uh, Europe. I mean, we, we are bridging power because we bridge um, the developing and the developed world, Asia and Europe, uh, vigorous free market and totalitarian communism. I mean, very so uh, my sense is, of course, we need a better military. We need someone other than uh, Latter-day Krishna Menon as our defense minister, uh, for example, and so on. I think the Indian Navy is now much more mobilized than it ever was before, so, which is possibly a good thing. But I don't think there is going to be a kind of, you know, sometimes this alarmist thing, and this brings me to the Dalai Lama. You know, Dalai Lama, <coughs> the latest provocation I mentioned, but the one before that was he went to Arunachal Pradesh, where there's a great ancient monastery in Tawang. And the Chinese said, you cannot let him go, because that is disputed territory. And there were editorials written by very respected Indian commentators saying, you should not let him go, because if you do, the Chinese will attack. And he went and nothing happened. Look, that doesn't mean the Chinese are not crossable. They are. Uh, but what can India do? I mean, that's really a question. And my view is that actually India has done the honorable thing. If there is a, a Tibetan literary, intellectual, uh, philosophical culture alive today, it is because of the Indians. It was the hospitality of the Indians. Uh, though uh, when out of you know, the kind of fashion the celebrities have, uh, the actor Richard Gere got interested in Dalai Lama. Uh, he actually said, no one has protect, protected the Tibetans till he came along. <laughs> I think the Indians have done a very honorable thing. And actually, it's a, it's, a much, it's a much larger question. If you look at India's hospitality to refugees historically, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's quite an ex it's underappreciated part of our, of our culture and our foreign policy. And I think India, has India could not do more. You know, it cannot go, could not have gone to war on behalf of the Dalai Lama, which is what the socialists wanted, which is what the socialists wanted Nehru to do, is to go to war, or what the BJP, the Hindu, they wanted Nehru to go to war on behalf of them. We couldn't do that. But we, the, the option, uh, the communists, for example, today, uh, the Indian communists detest the Dalai Lama. They call him a splitist, and they call him all kinds, you know, I think, uh, the, the same names that uh, the Chinese use, uh, which is what, wolf in sheep's clothing and so on, the Indian communists use that. So I think, with the, I think we are in a situation where he is a great spiritual leader. He does not uh, make political speeches, uh, but he's allowed to move around. I think it's, it's good that he addressed this uh, gathering of Buddhists. And the Tibetans themselves, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, uh, I mean, that they have a sense of community in exile. Uh, and you know, the riches of their poetry, their art, and literature would have all gone. I mean, if they'd gone to Hollywood, I can tell you they'd have gone. All right. So, but we, India is in a very problematic situation. I think on the whole, here at least, I think, not just Nehru, not just the government, but the people of India have done the right thing. You know, that, that's my sense, yeah. Other questions? Yes, the young lady I'm in the middle over that. Yeah. And we'll have a question towards the back, with, yes, the corner over there. Yeah, yeah you did, please. Hi. Um, going back to what you were talking about, about the navies, as you know, both India and China have embarked on projects to um, develop maritime forces capable of operating in deep waters. And in every press statement put out by the Indian government on defense and security, China features heavily as a major concern there. But in every press statement put out by the Chinese government, on yeah. the other hand, and in particular the latest like white yeah. paper on uh, maritime defense, India doesn't feature at all. Okay. Yeah, Does yeah, the Indian yeah. government Good. understand this asymmetry? Hmm. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Yes, please, in the back. Um, thank you for an engaging lecture. I kind of wanted to take it a bit back to, to Nehru, and I wondered, um, the war might have killed him, but it did also kill his ideas. And is that something yeah, yeah. that uh, India should grieve today? Yeah. Why? 
It's, and it's the death of Nehru's idea of something India today should be grieving. Yeah. The death of Nehru, I think, yeah. yeah. Could, could I just follow up sure, on that? Sure, just sure. One, one brief point. I mean, I was, I was wondering about this too in terms of the lecture that you just gave him on the issue of non-alignment, yeah. especially. Because, I mean, clearly in security terms, when you get to 1962, for a lot of Indians, you know, with the amount of time and energy and money that India had invested into setting up what had become by then a non-aligned movement. And it didn't seem to help India at all in terms of the kind of conflict that it, that it came into in, in, in 1962. What were the reflections after the war on that, particularly within the Congress party? That would be interesting to know. Yeah. Uh, the first question on, uh, on the Navy. Uh, I'm not, thank you for that piece of information. And it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't, doesn't surprise me for two reasons. One is that, you know, uh, Every public institution, you know, uh, also might have an independent autonomous agenda. You know, if the Navy, Indian Navy wants to get a greater advantage vis-a-vis -vis the Indian Army and the Indian Air Force, it's traditionally been the stepchild, the Indian Navy. It has to use an argument to get great funds, and China may be a way of, you know, positioning itself. It may be a legitimizing argument. The, it doesn't, the other reason it doesn't surprise me is, of course, the whole asymmetry. I mean, uh, very crudely, Pakistan has an inferiority complex versus India, vis-a-vis -vis India. India has a vis-a-vis, -vis, has an inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis China. China either has an inferiority complex vis-a-vis the Americans or no inferiority complex at all. Yeah, depending on how you look at it. Depending on Ali will have to flesh me out. But clearly India has some So that doesn't surprise me. I'll come to your question of the death of Nehru ideas, Nehruvian ideas. But I want to talk about non-alignment. Uh, you know, it's, I, again, what relevance it had on the foreign policy side? Uh, can, can it be reinvented, readapted? Mm. But actually, in terms of domestic policy, it helped. Mm. The Soviets um, um, and the Germans and the British were all competing to give us technical aid. Mm. And Nehru was smart enough. So, you know, uh, the institutions that are regarded widely, uh, you know, as uh, the showpieces of uh, Indian economic development, the institutes of technology, you know, one was built by the Soviet, one by the Germans, one by the Americans, so you could get all of that. Right. So, I th likewise with the steel plant. So, I think there were some even uh, interesting uh, side spin benefits of, of non-alignment. Though there were ambivalences, uh, I think in 1956 uh, the Indians were uh, uh, very rightly critical of the Soviet invasion, but wishy-washy about the hung uh, Hungarian uprising and so on. But on balance, it's hard to say what are the and non-alignment was forced upon us mm. when John Foster Dulles signed an arms pact, uh, you know, uh, uh, really uh, 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 with the Pakistanis in 1954. I think I'd like to say a little bit about Nehruvian ideals because, you know, this is as I, uh, 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 this is probably my first and last venture into the field of military history and so on. Uh, and I'm really a historian of Indian democracy. And in that sense, uh, what you say is quite right and perceptive, that whether my analysis of Nehru and the China war is right or wrong, the fact is that it's so heavily identified with him that that national humiliation has also led to the burying of some of his more important ideals. And those ideals are enduring. I mean, Nehru's emphasis on uh, universal adult franchise was visionary. That's one of the things that keep, keep, keeps uh, India together. Uh, Nehru's uh, determined commitment, like Gandhi, to religious and linguistic pluralism uh, was also you know, completely necessary and needs to be revived and renewed. Uh, Nehru's respect for parliament. The Indian parliament has been shut for the last week because of you know, crazed politicians throwing mics and going to the well, of all parties. 
Nehru had a great respect for the institutions of democracy. And, you know, and uh, if you see uh, his appreciation of good speeches by his opponents, I mean, it's a quite extraordinary. Uh, and Nehru's, you know, uh, uh, respect for the Congress Party, uh, contrary to uh, <coughs> what many people claim and allege, Nehru did not start a dynasty. It was Indira Gandhi who started a dynasty. And on, on the question of the death of Nehruvian ideals, I'd like to quote a remark of um, uh, the great Indian sociologist Andre Bete, who says that uh, Nehru's posthumous reputation uh, reverses a biblical injunction. In the Bible, it is said that the sins of the father are visited on seven successive generations. In the case of Nehru, the sins of seven successive generations are visited retrospectively upon him. That's one of the best political defenses of a leader that I, I ever heard. Upstairs! Uh, no intention to forget the people upstairs. Uh, thank Please. You. Uh, I just have some clarifications. Uh, like, is, is it true that Zhou Enlai was the, f was the one who actually came up with the idea of non-alignment and then China never actually became a part of the non-alignment policy? And also there had been some, uh, I don't know about the region in Aksai Chin, uh, like China did not really clearly say to India, like, what they want about the Aksai Chin before the culmination of the war in 1962. So I just want some clarifications on that. Thank, Thank you. you. Good. Who else? Yes, from from. Sorry to ask you another question about military history, Dr. Guha, but could you say something about Nehru as war leader in, those, in that brief period, and particularly how he responded to military advice, what sort of military advice he was getting, mm. um, and uh, just elaborate a little bit on his attitude towards the military. Was it anything like yours? Is <laughs> <laughs> it all right for me if I take another one? <laughs> uh, there was another question right at the front over here. Could you just, yeah, please. Thank you for interesting lecture. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned uh, Nehru said in 1930s uh, his sympathy with the Chinese people. I was just wondering, at that time, does he know about the Ch Chinese Communist Party? And the Chinese people, what he meant is the general Chinese people or the Chinese Communist Party. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, Chiang Wenlai, uh, uh, well, you see, there's this episode in 1956 when there's a Bandung conference. And, of course, the Chinese are part of it. This is a very important non-line movement conference. And there are various theories. I mean, one, again, those who go in for excessively personalized interpretations of uh, national conflicts claim that Nehru patronized Chiang They took him around and said, meet my you know, young Chinese friend and be good to him kind of thing. And, and uh, uh, so that, but I think it was not really. It was Nehru... Tito, much more than Chiang Lai, because Tito had clearly fought with the Russians. The Chinese were ambivalent. Nehru, Tito, uh, Nasser, and Suikarno of Indonesia, who were the four, in a sense, builders. I mean, the Indians would say Nehru, and the Indonesians would say Suikarno, and so on. But uh, Chiang Lai was not part of it, really. Uh, Nehru could have, uh, could be accused, I think, rightly, of naivety in, uh, in thinking that the Chinese were not aligned in the same way in which Tito was. Because the Chinese, at that stage, really had a you know, much closer. And of course, Nehru could also be accused of overlooking the lack of democracy in many non-aligned countries. Now, um, Nehru was war leader. Uh, was his attitude like mine? Possibly, regrettably so. Now, <laughs> he didn't take the military seriously enough. And uh, there were some manifestations of this. The man I mentioned, Timaya. Um, who was a great war hero, you know, in, in the Second World War and in, in Korea and so on. Uh, he had a fight with uh, uh, 
uh, Krishna Menon, which uh, who was a defense minister, which ha which uh, led to his resignation and then early retirement, and that had to do with the promotion, arbitrary promotion of generals. There was one general who was promoted who had no real fighting experience, who was then sent to the front, um, uh, uh, you know, to command, uh, um, uh, in charge of a command, uh, whom Krishna Menon promoted, and Nehru indulged. Uh, so clearly he was. Um, you know, he was not someone who uh, took it seriously. This, I want something else which I have not confirmed because I have not done the necessary research and I don't know the Chinese documents. But it's said on the Indian side that when the first clashes started in early September 1962, it is said by some critics of Nehru. See, Nehru went, uh, uh, while the first, and the clashes had been happening since 59, so they were mm. here and there. Some clashes happened and Nehru went to uh, uh, Colombo for a meeting and the airport, he was asked at Delhi airport and he said, we'll just throw them out. You know, so he made some offhand remark. And is, and is that is that kind of I mean, this? This is I've not looked at the newspaper reports, but I, and what the and then some that the Chinese were so offended by the sense that you'll throw us out. You know, we're just you know taking out one or two men. You'll throw us out. So I think my sense would be that uh, uh, he certainly didn't have that strategic thinking, uh, and I think his choice of Krishna Menon is a spectacular example of this. His indulging of these promotions. Uh, and after, to return to about what happened after the war, I didn't mm. completely answer your question, uh, Ani. Immediately after the war, Krishna Menon was sacked. While the war was going on, Krishna Menon was sacked. And it's a mark of how colossal Nehru's reputation was that everyone asked for Krishna Menon. From 1959, people had asked for Krishna Menon's sacking, including another great opponent of Nehru, uh, uh, a great socialist leader called Acharya Kriplani, who made many speeches in the parliament talking about demoralization of military from 1959. When the war happened, Krishna Menon was sacked. But, uh, uh, no one dared then call for Nehru's head, uh, interestingly. But after that, in his stead was appointed a young, able minister called Vaibhi Chavan, who modernized the military. And of course, the, why the, when the war happened, it was clear that uh, India had to ally with the Americans, which is what they did. And mm -hmm. then the modernization that took place in 62 and 65, partly under the watch of Vaibhi Chavan, and partly under the watch of Nehru's Successor as Prime Minister, a completely forgotten figure called Lal Bahadur Shastri, who played much more great, much greater emphasis in the military, uh, is probably responsible for the fact that you know, uh, at least in subsequent battles, the Indian Army has mm. has not done uh, that badly. Now, uh, your question about Nehru, of course, Nehru knew about the communists, and uh, Nehru was kind of it's very interesting. I mean, he was a utterly principled democrat at home. I mean, you could say in that sense, though Nehru uh, is regarded in many ways as antipathetic to America, uh, rightly or wrongly. In some ways, he's very much like many American leaders, you know. Totally committed to democracy at home, but quite happy to indulge dictators abroad as long as they, they're your friends. And Nehru had an ambivalent, you know, he did, and he made a kind of seamless transition uh, from the Gomindan to the Chinese. Hmm. And there's a man, one of his advisors, also someone whose claim gave him bad advice, a diplomat called Panikar, served as ambassador to both. Uh, so uh, he knew, he knew, but he, you know, he thought that this, uh, the civilizational ties uh, would overcome, uh, you know, these kind of rival political doctrines. The strategic, you know, the interests of two Asian countries emerging from colonialism uh, would, you know, would be nullified by the difference between democracy and dictatorship. So he was happy to ally with the Kuomintang and then later with the Chinese, uh, with the communists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can't let you off the hook here tonight without asking you about the current state of Sino-Indian relationship and where it is going in the future. Now, you said in your lecture that you don't foresee uh, another war. You don't think it is likely that there would be another military conflict between the two. But what kind of relationship 
can we then expect between two countries that are now really taking their place in the first rank of, of great powers? What do you see as the key elements of that relationship as, as it will develop over the next five to ten years? So I think uh, it's hard to say that because I think the asymmetry will re uh, remain. I mean, contrary to what is implied very politely in a question, you probably don't believe it, but many people do, and I, I, I don't believe it, that uh, India is fit to be in the first rank of powers, and my next, next public lecture will actually be about that. Will, will be about why it isn't. Why, why it right. isn't. So I think there is this asymmetry. I think, uh, uh, I think uh, uh, there will be increasing trade. Uh, uh, it's hard to see more than business binding them. You know, mm. I think clear their, their business is a common interest. I mean, one of the interesting uh, aspects of uh, the recent years was that four or five years ago, there was a Chinese prime minister who visited uh, India. I forget his mm. name. But Wang Jiabao. Wang Jiabao mm. came and he came first to my hometown, Bangalore, mm. and then went to Delhi, which is a complete reversal of what political leaders do. And he was asked and he said, the B of business comes before the B of boundary. That was his, that, all right. Now, or his, his interpreter said that. I mean, he, he said that. And I think that's, so I think there's clearly close business ties. Mm. Uh, Intellectual ties, very little. Mm. Uh, and mm. I think that's to yeah. do with the fact that they're a closed society and we're not. Mm. So intellectuals who are allied to the Communist Party certainly can go there often. But you know, freelance liberal intellectuals like me will find it hard to get invitations to go to China <laughs> uh, and so on. Uh, so, uh, uh, but uh, you know, literature, music, it's, so it's, and of course there's one elephant in the room we've not discussed, mm. uh, which will, I think, crucially determine mm. uh, the direction that um, the relation with India and China uh, take, and that's Pakistan, mm. you know, how strong and how robust uh, is China's commitment to Pakistan, mm. uh, you know, which will, you know, uh, Pakistan, what will happen to Pakistan, to the nuclear mm. arsenal, will the jihadis capture it, uh, what will happen in Afghanistan, where India has long-term cultural, historical, now geostrategic interests, how will the Chinese behave when the Americans move out, uh, how will that play out in the China-India rivalry, you know, and so, so the, I think, the Chinese relationship with Pakistan mm. uh, will also, uh, I think, uh, greatly influence uh, the direction of the political relationship. Yeah. Ram, it's wonderful to have a political and also to some extent intellectual historian reflect on international affairs in terms of the angles that you have developed for us tonight. Uh, I want to thank you for a splendid lecture. We're looking forward to the continuation in the spring when Ram will do, do two more lectures here. One on why India should not be a great power, and one on why India is a great power in cricket. Thank you very much. Thank you.